My message uh, today, as you can see, is entitled, uh, The Man Who Missed His Cross. Uh, this is a man uh, we normally give only passing interest to uh, when we come to the Easter story. And of course, his name was Barabbas. Uh, Barabbas was to die on the cross on which our Savior died. But just hours before the crucifixion, Barabbas, as you know, was released with Jesus taking his place. Jesus was nailed on and executed on the cross, prepared for Barabbas. Look at the introduction in your notes. Uh, Barabbas played a key role in the events leading up to Christ's death. He is mentioned in all four Gospels and occupies 38 verses in the New Testament. And uh, I give you the verses uh, for your convenience. He's also mentioned in one of Peter's sermons in Acts. And what we know about Barabbas, as you can see there, can be summed up in those three brief sentences. Barabbas was guilty. Jesus was innocent. Barabbas lived. Jesus died. Now, my objective in giving this message on Barabbas is twofold. If you are a follower of Christ, and I'm confident that most of us here, of course, this morning are, I pray you will gain a greater appreciation for what Jesus accomplished for you through his death on the cross. If you are not a follower of Christ, I pray after this message, you will be a follower of Christ uh, as you come to realize that he is worthy of your faith, worthy of your love, uh, worthy of your allegiance. So look with me first at the man who missed his cross. First, look at his crime. In Matthew 27, verse 16, uh, we're told that Barabbas was not just any prisoner. Uh, we're told that he was a notorious prisoner. Apparently, he had been on uh, the most wanted list uh, due to the seriousness of his crimes. And as a result, he literally was on death row awaiting execution by crucifixion. In Luke 23, verse 19, and John 18, 40, we discover the specific crimes he was guilty of. He was guilty of insurrection, murder, and robbery. So he was a vicious terrorist, as we would think of a terrorist today. He was a cold-blooded murderer, and he was a crooked thief. Now look at the custom of releasing a criminal. Uh, Matthew 27 verse 15 reads, now at the feast, and what is that referring to? The Passover feast. The governor, and of course in this case that's referring to Pilate who was the governor over Judea, the Roman governor over Judea at this time, was accustomed to release for the multitudes any one prisoner whom they wanted. Uh, we don't know exactly how this uh, uh, custom began. But, of course, you know the Passover celebrates uh, the children of Israel's release from Egypt, their freedom, deliverance from Egypt. So, apparently, as a, a good gesture to the uh, Jewish community, uh, the Romans uh, agreed that on Passover, in honor of that feast, they would release uh, one of the Jewish prisoners in their prison. 
uh, and we'll come back to that point a little bit later. Now, his location, uh, and, I, and this is important to the story. Uh, the fortress of Antonio, as you see there in your notes, was the only major prison in the city of Jerusalem. So more than likely, this is where Barabbas was incarcerated while waiting for the day of his execution. The fortress of Antonio, and we're going to see this, this comes into play a little bit later in this message. The fortress was about one half mile from Herod's palace where Pilate would have resided while he was in Jerusalem. And this is also where the trial of Jesus would have occurred. Pilate lived in Caesarea. That was the providential capital of Judea for the Romans. But on important uh, times of the year, like Passover, when there would be large crowds, where there would be uh, potential for problems, uh, Pilate generally would come from Caesarea uh, into Jerusalem, and of course, while in Jerusalem, reside in Herod's palace, and that is, of course, where they also uh, had the trial of Christ. Now, second point, look at the Christ who bore the sinner's cross, and we need to begin with the sham trials. And there are two trials we know from the Scriptures, one religious, the other secular. Uh, both of these trials were within nine hours from about midnight uh, to uh, sunrise, and they involved six different legal proceedings. And I, I thought you would be very interested in getting a little more detail about these trials. This is uh, an aspect of the uh, Easter story that is often just totally overlooked, but I think you'll find it uh, very fascinating, as uh, I have as well. Uh, what we need to realize at, is that the trials of Jesus were literally the ultimate miscarriage of justice, and especially the Jewish religious trial since it was supposed to be based on Jewish law and reflect God's justice. Jesus' religious trial was before a group that was known as the Great Sanhedrin. Sometimes they were called the Council of Elders. And this consisted, this group consisted of 70 uh, chief priests, elders, and scribes with the high priest presiding over the entire group, bringing their total number to 71. Now, this is very important to give you a little understanding of how uh, they operated, and this was basically based on principles laid down in the Old Testament law, again, to reflect God's justice. The great Sanhedrin had, abs had the authority only to act as judge and jury. That was their only authority in judicial matters. They had absolutely no authority to instigate charges. They could not bring charges against anyone. They had no authority to prosecute a case. Again, their only role was to render the final judgment after hearing the case and the evidence that was presented against the accused. Now, the accused in their system of law was guaranteed representation by a defense, defense attorney. He had uh, the right uh, to present evidence. He had the right uh, to bring uh, witnesses on his behalf. And he had the right, and this is important, to a public trial in the temple 
during daylight hours. Uh, in other words, it was against protocol to have any closed-door meetings. It was against uh, their principles and laws to have any trials at night. It had to be in daylight, open to all, done in the temple. And any conviction had to be based on two reliable witnesses with their testimony being in perfect agreement with one another. Now, guess you'll... you'll find this interesting. Guess what the penalty for a perjury was? Uh, if a witness was found guilty of giving false testimony, his penalty was to suffer the punishment the accused would suffer if he were to be found guilty. For example, if you gave false testimony in a capital punishment case, what would be the perjurer's penalty? he would be put to death for his perjury. Another interesting requirement was that when a death sentence was rendered, in other words, when the Sanhedrin said, guilty, and we give him the sentence of death, the execution by their own laws, regulations, and standards could not be carried out until the third day after the verdict was rendered. And during the intervening day, the great Sanhedrin was required to fast and pray. Now, every single point I just mentioned was totally violated in the trial of Jesus. As you see there in your notes, the Jewish trial had three phases. First before Annas, and we'll come back to him in a moment. And then, of course, the uh, latter two proceedings was before Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, who oversaw uh, the Sanhedrin. Uh, the first two proceedings, uh, which led to a guilty verdict and the sentence of death, both of those, the one before Annas and the first one before Caiaphas and the great Sanhedrin, was done under the cover of night. Uh, these two legal proceedings would have occurred between midnight and 3 a.m., they were done in closed doors, and they were done in the secrecy of the home, first of Annas, and then the home of Caiaphas, the current high priest. The only reason, by the way, for the third proceeding, which took place at sunrise in the temple, was to give the public the appearance that they were following proper procedure. In other words, they knew the people knew they couldn't have closed-door meetings. They couldn't try them at night. So they convened this last proceeding in the, in the Jewish trial right at sunrise in the temple so the public would think that they had followed the proper protocol. But it was all a sham. Uh, the great Sanhedrin also instigated the charges against Jesus, which was against their regulations. They literally served as prosecutor, judge, and jury in total disregard of their established legal codes. Jesus was given no defense attorney. He had no opportunity to present witnesses on his behalf. The great Sanhedrin now, they paraded a multitude of false witnesses into the court to testify against Jesus. Every single witness lied. Every single witness was guilty of perjury, but despite all the efforts of the Sanhedrin to produce two witnesses whose testimony would agree, they failed to do so. The Bible is very, very clear on that. 
There was never agreement in the false witnesses that they, uh, uh, they brought. And you say, well, then how did they bring a guilty verdict? Because of what Jesus said himself when he declared that he was the Son of God. And that's an interesting point. By their own legal regulations, policies, and standards, an accused could not be declared guilty on the basis of his testimony alone. There had to be the two witnesses against the accused whose testimony was in agreement. Uh, during the proceedings, we learn from the Scripture, and this makes it even worse, Jesus was mocked, he was spit on, he was beaten in the face, and he was put to death the same day the verdict was rendered. All again, travesties of justice. So bottom line, really, the only thing you really need to know is this. Long before Jesus was ever arrested, long, long before he was arrested, the decision was made to sentence Jesus to death. The only issue was to invent a crime to justify the Sanhedrin's action. So the real purpose in the trial was not to render impartial judgment on the innocence or guilt of Jesus, but to put a veneer of legality on their murder of Jesus. Now you might ask, well, why was Jesus taken first to Annas? Annas was a former high priest some years back. He no longer was a member of the Sanhedrin. So why did he first go to Annas instead of going straight to Caiaphas and the great Sanhedrin? Well, Annas served as high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. Uh, he was removed from office by the Romans. You know why? Because he was gaining too much power. Uh, too much inf influence, and uh, they were very concerned about that. But no problem for Annas. You know what Annas did? He arranged to be succeeded as high priest by five of his sons, one of his grandsons, and Caiaphas, the present high priest, is Annas' son-in-law, married to his daughter. And, uh, and the thing you need to know about Annas Simple, simple, simplest way to put it is this. He was the godfather who ran the show. He was the one behind the scenes calling all the shots. And we know that he was the most powerful man in the city of Jerusalem at this time in history. He was proud, he was ambitious, and he was greedy. He became extremely wealthy. You know how? by exploiting the sale of sacrificial animals at the temple. And by collecting fees, the money changers charge to exchange foreign currency for worshipers to pay their temple tax. So infamous was his greed that the outer courts of the temple where the transactions took place literally became known to the entire public as the bazaar of Annas. Annas hated Jesus. Why do you think he hated Jesus? Because if you, could, if you just think for a moment, on two different occasions, Jesus totally disrupted his business when he cleansed the temple. When he came in there, overturned the tables, got his whip, ran those money changers out. So Jesus, bottom line, was not good for business. So Anna said he's got to be eliminated. 
Now, after the Jewish trial came the Roman secular trial, which also had three phases, as you see in your notes. First, before Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, and then, of course, Pilate sent him briefly to Herod, then Herod back to Pilate for the final verdict. Now, you might ask, well, why did Jesus have to even go to Pilate? That's because the Jews did not have the authority to administer capital punishment. Only the Romans could do that. So, the great Sanhedrin had to have Pilate sign off on the death sentence before Jesus could be crucified. And the amazing, amazing thing about the secular trial is how the innocence of Christ was affirmed. It's, 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 it's stunning. So look with me in your notes at the testimonies concerning the sinless Christ and His innocence, all of which I'm just going to take, I mean, we could go to innumerable scriptures, but I'm going to take most of these from the Gospel of Luke from chapter 23, and I would encourage you to follow in your Bible. So you can turn to Luke chapter 23, and we have uh, uh, several testimonies there, uh, not only related to His trial, but as He moves on to crucifixion. Look at Luke 23, verse 4. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no, what? Guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. I mean, they tried to say, you know, I mean, they, they wanted him dead because what? They were envious of Christ. Pilate could see all through that. And they brought false charges. Oh, he's, a, he's an insurrectionist. He's, he, he's citing rebellion. He, he's telling the people they don't have to pay their taxes. You know, he's, he's presenting himself as king. So he's, he, he's in competition with Caesar. And so you, you need to take him out. Well, Pilate saw all through that. He said he's not guilty. Uh, look at uh, verses 14 and 15. And Pilate summoned the, well, look, look at verse 13. Start at verse 13. And Pilate summoned the chief priests and the, and the rulers, again referring to the Sanhedrin, and the people, and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Nor, no, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Uh, look at the uh, testimony of the uh, thief on the cross in that same chapter. Uh, go to uh, verses 40 and 41. Uh, uh, but the other answered and rebuking him said, this is the one thief rebuking the other thief that was crucified with Christ. Remember the thief began to revile Christ. He said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, referring to the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus, we indeed justly for, for we are what we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has what? Done nothing wrong. And then look at the uh, centurion's uh, testimony, the centurion that led the detail that crucified uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 47, Now when the centurion uh, saw what had happened, uh, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. The innocent died. Uh, you might want to look at just a couple of those other uh, testimonies from uh, New Testament Scripture. Uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, 
22 uh, reads uh, that he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5 is another wonderful one that emphasizes the uh, sinlessness of Christ and his innocence. Verse verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin, notice, he knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 for we, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one, notice now, who has been tempted in all things just like we are, yet without sin, sinless, innocent. And then one more, 1 John uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 5, we read, And you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him... There is no sin. Now turn with me, look with me now at that third point in your sermon notes, uh, the release of Barabbas. With that background concerning the man who missed his cross and the Christ who bore the criminal's cross, uh, look at the release of Barabbas. As I already mentioned, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. So what he did, he tried to use the custom that we talked about earlier of releasing a prisoner chosen by the people during the Passover feast as an opportunity to get him free. Uh, He offered the people a choice between what? Barabbas and Christ. Now, Pilate thought, I've outwitted Annas. I've outsmarted Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. He knew they wanted Jesus executed out of envy, but he was confident that the multitude would choose an innocent Jesus over a hardened and vile criminal like Barabbas. And after all, just days earlier, they had sung the praises of Jesus as he entered Jerusalem that we celebrated earlier in this service. But Pilate, as you know, grossly underestimated the ability of Caiaphas, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders to persuade the people to choose Barabbas for release and, uh, and Jesus for crucifixion. Now, as mentioned earlier, and this is where things sort of get interesting, Barabbas was being held in the fortress of Antonio while the trial of Jesus was taking place just about a half mile away at Herod's palace. Now, knowing this uh, creates a very dramatic scene uh, when Pilate offered the people the choice between Barabbas and Jesus and especially dramatic for Barabbas, as you're going to see. Now, from his jail cell a half mile away, Barabbas could easily hear the crowd's words in the distance, but he could not hear the words spoken by Pilate. So look at your notes where I've sort of recreated the exchange between Pilate and the crowd, keeping in mind that the bold, capitalized words were the only ones Barabbas could hear from his jail cell. So Pilate, which of the two do you want me to release to you? The multitude, they scream out what? Barabbas! Pilate, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Multitude, let him be crucified! Pilate, 
Why? What evil has he done? The multitude, let him be crucified. And the scripture tells us they just continued to shout this. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Pilate, I am innocent of this man's blood. The multitude, his blood be on us and our children. Now, folks, use your imagination. Can you even begin to imagine the fear that gripped Barabbas when he heard those words and thought his fate was sealed? All he could hear was, Barabbas, let him be crucified. His blood be on us and our children. How about his surprise when the soldiers opened his jail cell, but instead of leading him away to crucifixion, he was released. The notorious prisoner, the vicious terrorist, the cold-blooded murderer, the crooked thief walks out of prison scot-free. But he only walked scot-free because an innocent man was nailed to the cross in his place. Now, we do not know if Barabbas ever placed his faith in Jesus for eternal salvation. The Bible is totally silent on that point. But his release from prison with Jesus being crucified in his place is a picture of the salvation God offers every individual from the guilt of sin and eternal damnation in hell. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, who's known as the Prince of Preachers, uh, preached in London back in the 1800s, uh, uh, said this in his message uh, that he gave on Barabbas. And, that, and, I've, and the quote is so powerful, I've, I've, it's there in your notes. Spurgeon said in his message, Have we not here, first of all, in this act of deliverance of the sinner and the binding of the innocent, a sort of type of that great work which is accomplished by the death of our Savior? You and I may fairly take our stand by the side of Barabbas. We are sinners like Barabbas was, was a sinner. We are guilty like Barabbas was guilty. We were deserving of death like he was deserving of death and eternal damnation. And then he says, here we stand before the judgment seat. The prince of life is bound for us and we are allowed to go free. The Lord, the Lord delivers us and he quits us while the Savior, without spot or blemish or shadow of a fault, is led forth to crucifixion. So look with me at the fourth point in your notes, and that is the sacrificial substitute of Christ. Uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 53. First look at the, this Old Testament passage. It refers to a substitutionary sacrifice. And then we'll look at an Old Testament picture of this same truth, a, a wonderful, powerful uh, picture. Uh, Isaiah 53, very, very familiar uh, verses, uh, but this is what we read in verses 5 and 6, and then the latter part of verse 12, the last verse in the chapter. But he, referring to Jesus, was pierced through. Why? For our transgressions. And we need to make this personal. When you read it, make it personal. For he, Jesus, was pierced through for my transgressions, for Andy's transgressions. Put your name right there. He was crushed 
for my iniquities, for Andy's iniquities. The chastening of my well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging I am healed. I have gone astray like a sheep eats, including me, has turned to his own way. But the Lord calls the iniquity, what, of us all, of Andy, to fall on, what, him. And then the latter part of verse 12, and he was numbered uh, with the transgressors, and he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The Old Testament picture, uh, this, is, uh, this is beautiful. It's the two birds in the rite of cleansing the leper. If a, if a man had leprosy, and of course you know that banned him from worship and so many other things, and to be uh, restored to the community, uh, restored to worship if he had been cleansed, there, were, there was a rite that the priest would go through with him uh, that would declare him to be cleansed, declare him to be free, uh, to come back into the uh, uh, community and participate fully in worship. And, uh, and so they took two birds. They took one bird and they killed it. And then they poured that bird's blood in a basin. And then they took the second bird and they dipped that bird in the blood of the slain bird. And then they let that bird fly free with crimson on his wings as a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for me, what Jesus did for you. As through his death, I am released from my guilt. I am set free to walk in newness of life. Uh, look at the New Testament passage. It's a very, very powerful passage in Romans chapter 5 uh, that speaks of his uh, uh, substitutionary uh, work. We read in verses uh, 6 uh, through 11. For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. Think of that picture of the bird flying away, free of all guilt, justified. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In other words, sinners reconciled to God through the death of Christ as He bore our sin, as He bore our guilt and shed His blood for that sin and guilt. And of course, the New Testament picture, you don't need to turn there. This is the statement of John the Baptist. When he, he, he turns, he sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold the what? The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And, of course, that was painting the picture that every Jew was familiar with. When those little lambs were sacrificed at the temple to demonstrate 
the power of atoning blood. Now, as we finish, look at the sinner's choice. And for every one of us, for every person alive, it comes down to this question. It's the one that Pilate asked. What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Every individual has to answer that question. What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Look at the next statement in your notes. Bottom line, here's the conclusion to this message, and I wanted to put, put it to you in writing. Bottom line, Barabbas must die or Christ must die. You, the sinner, must perish or Christ, the sinless Holy One, must die. He died that the guilty may go free. Will you confess that like Barabbas, you deserve death and everlasting punishment and then accept the gift of God's judgment on your sin in Christ or will you refuse His gift and choose to suffer God's judgment against your own sin? That's the choice we have. I can either accept God's judgment on my sin in the person of Jesus, but if I refuse to do that through faith in His death, burial, and resurrection, as I surrender my life to Him, then the only other alternative is Andy Merritt will be judged by the wrath and condemnation of God. If I turn my back on the gift freely being offered to me, and of course, you're all familiar with Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. And death, of course, separation from God. Not only separation from God in this life, where you can find no sense of meaning, fulfillment, real purpose, but also eternal separation from God in everlasting damnation. But, praise Him, the free, the free, the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. In Christ, our Lord. Look at that sacred, second verse. This is the second verse from a great old hymn entitled, Old Sacred Head Now Wounded. And uh, this second verse really captures this, the essence of this entire message. But I don't have a voice, or I would have sang this to you instead of sharing the message. Uh, what thou, my Lord, hast has suffered was for all for sinner's gain, was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior. Tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor and grant to me thy grace. Amen? So as we close, if you're a believer here this morning, I, I, what I pray this message simply does as we move into the Easter season is it just ignites your heart with a deeper, greater appreciation for what Jesus accomplished for you through His death on the cross. That it will motivate uh, in your heart greater heartfelt worship towards Jesus. It will take you deeper in your surrender to live your life for Christ. I think of 2 Corinthians 5. It says, He died for all that they who live, this is one of my favorite verses, He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose for all. And then, of course, if you do not know Him, 
I pray you will put your faith and your trust in him. You will accept the gift of salvation that he's offering you through the person of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, uh, I just want to give us all a moment uh, just in our hearts. I, I know, uh, I'm confident, of course, I, I know virtually every person in the sanctuary this morning with this uh, uh, smaller group, and uh, I, I, I know, uh, confident, uh, the overwhelming majority uh, uh, know you, love you. And so I just want to give uh, each of you an opportunity just to thank him right now for the truth that we've heard, that that truth has been the basis of our salvation. And so just take a moment to praise him, thank him for salvation. And if you are here this morning and you do not know him, I would ask you right now to make your heart his home, that you would invite him in to possess your life as you put your trust in what he accomplished for you through his death, burial, and resurrection, that you will receive the gift of God's judgment on your sin in the person of Jesus so that you do not have to pay that judgment yourself, and that you can know freedom not only from guilt but from the power of sin. And like that little bird covered with blood, uh, fly freely, uh, whistling, singing God's praises, and soaring for the Lord Jesus Christ.